0: In this episode, I had the fortunate opportunity to speak with Jesse Draper. Jesse is the founder of Halogen Ventures and the creator and host of Emmy-nominated The Valley Girl Show. Key points addressed were Jesse's founding of Halogen Ventures and its work as a Los Angeles-based venture capital fund focused on investing in early-stage consumer technology startups with a female in the founding team. We also unpacked Jesse's extensive knowledge of creating and hosting what was the first tech talk show, The Valley Girl Show, and what the industry was like a decade ago during the show's inception and growth. Stay tuned for my informative talk with Jesse Draper. Hi, my name is Patricia Kathleen, and this podcast series contains interviews I conduct with women, female-identified, and non-binary individuals regarding their professional stories and personal narrative. This podcast is designed to hold a space for all individuals to learn from their counterparts regardless of age, status, or industry. We aim to contribute to the evolving global dialogue surrounding underrepresented figures in all industries across the USA and abroad. If you're enjoying this podcast, be sure to check out our subsequent series that dive deep into specific areas such as vegan life, fasting, and roundtable topics. They can be found via our website, patriciacathleen.com, where you can also join our newsletter. You can also subscribe to all of our series on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, Podbean, and YouTube. Thanks for listening. Now let's start the conversation. Hi, everyone, and welcome back. I'm your host, Patricia, and today I am so excited to be sitting down with Jessie Draper. She's the founder of Halogen Ventures and the host and creator of Emmy-nominated The Valley Girl Show. You can find out more about all of the endeavors that we talk about today and her on halogenvc.com. Welcome, Jessie.
1: Thank you. I'm so excited to be here. I love what you're doing.
0: Absolutely. I love what you're doing. So the feeling is mutual. (laughs) Um, For everyone listening, we're going to climb into a quick bio of Jesse. But before we get to that, in case you're new to our series, um, a quick roadmap for today's podcast. We'll follow the same trajectory as all of them in this series. First, we'll look at unpacking Jesse's academic and professional background leading to the launch of Halogen Ventures, Um, any pertinent information that we can garner from that. Then we'll jump straight into unpacking Halogen Ventures. And um, for everyone listening, all of our nerdy little founders and entrepreneurs out there, we'll start out with the logistics, the who, what, when, where, why, funding, all of that, Um, the logistical stuff up front. Then we'll get into the ethos of what they're doing um, with halogen and um, how all of it's working, the impetus, some of the markets that they've service and the populations that they kind of look at working with. And then we'll also unpack the Valley Girl show it, um, it's Emmy nominated. It's, it's got a really cool impetus. Jesse spoke with a bunch of really fantastic people over the past decade. And I have a lot of production questions for those of you who are looking at it's, uh, the, the medium of kind of mixing in YouTube with everything that everyone's doing has been a very real part of the integration model and um, is particularly entrepreneurship and foundership. But we'll kind of look at all of that and then we'll unpack other um, media-like endeavors that she and her prolific family that she comes from have done. Then we'll turn our attention towards looking at goals and plans that Jesse has for the next one to three years. This has changed for everyone, entrepreneurs and successful titans alike, given the um, recent COVID-19 pandemic and how some of that has changed and what her conversation with her company and herself has been like in reassessing those goals for future plans. And we'll wrap everything up with advice that Jessie has for those of you who are looking to get involved with her, um, what she does or perhaps emulate some of her career's magical success. As promised, a quick bio on Jessie before I begin peppering her with questions. Jessie Draper is a mother of two boys, founding partner of Halogen Ventures, as well as a creator and host of no, um, Emmy-nominated television series, The Valley Girl Show. Draper is a fourth-generation venture capitalist focused on early-stage investing in female-founded consumer technology. Among her 55 portfolio companies are The Skim*, Carbon 38, Hopskip Drive, The Flex Company, and *Eloquy*, recently sold to Walmart. And this is L, which recently sold to P&G. She stars on SET's television series, Meet the Drapers, currently in its second season. It says here it might be in its third or fourth. We were just talking. Well, I'll get Jesse to clarify that later on. Uh, Draper was listed by Marie Claire Magazine as one of the 50 most connected women in America. Draper has been a contributor to Marie Claire, Mashable, Forbes, and is a regular investor in tech personality on shows, including TLC's Girl Starter, The Katie Couric Show, Fox's Good Day LA, CNBC's Who Wants to Be the Next Millionaire Inventor, and Freedom's Startup U. She proudly sits on the board of directors of Enterprise Technology Company, Work, Blue Fever, pre-Madonna, creator of Nailbot, and the nonprofit board BizWorld. Draper supports the Parkinson's Institute and is very involved with growing UCLA's female entrepreneurship community. Now, Jesse, I know if I um, if I stumbled over any of that, you can absolutely clarify. But before we get into unpacking Halogen and everything that you're doing there, I'm hoping you can draw us a roadmap for everyone listening or watching the podcast today of um, your early academic and professional life that led you to launching Halogen. Yeah.
1: Um- Hi, hello everyone. I'm happy to be here, and um, you know, I think like most career trajectories, it's it's not you know, it's not a straight line by any means, but it does make sense (laughs) once you hear sort of like how it moved me. Um, But I grew up in Silicon Valley, Um, as you mentioned. I'm a fourth generation investor and uh, the first female in line. I didn't think I could go into that profession, although I had many venture capitalists in my Um, blood. And that was sort of all I knew growing up in Silicon Valley. I grew up around incredible entrepreneurs. Um, uh, It was, you know, I'm a very privileged human being. And um, I, but again, I didn't think I could go into this profession because my mom worked incredibly hard raising four children, Um, And my dad was very, um, he really opened the curtains to me in terms of educating me about startups. I worked with him a little. I sourced deals for him through my show, um, like Paperless Post and numerous others. Um, And uh, I I worked at an asset management company just after college, um, but I just didn't think that I could go directly into that career because I didn't see any women around me. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so I saw my aunt, Polly, and they say, you can be what you can see. And my aunt was this very successful actress. And, you know, it's sort of funny, but I thought, oh, as an eight-year-old child, like that's what a a traditional job for a woman, you know, because she's someone I'm very close to and that's what she does. And um, she was on the show called 30-something, in the 80s that was really popular. It's coming back on Netflix, actually. Shameless plug. Um, and she, I just idolized her. So I went into entertainment. Um, I, I went to UCLA. I studied theater, film, and television. Um, I, my dad was always kind of like in the back of my head saying, how are you going to make this a business? How is this a career? Um, you know, he was supportive, but he was sort of like, you need to figure out how to make a living um, doing this and it's a very difficult, uh, lifestyle. If you know, uh, she's like, it's rare that Polly had such a successful career, um, and still has. Um, and so I went to UCLA after UCLA, um, was on a Nickelodeon show, was acting, was going to cattle calls. And I very quickly was like, okay, um, I I love and respect this profession, but I go to these cattle calls and there's a thousand girls who look just like me and are probably much more talented. And my heart is really um, with this world of technology. And so I kind of combined my two passions and I basically said, okay, um, I have a third season um, of this Nickelodeon show and then I have a six month hiatus. And instead of auditioning this year, I'm gonna go start um, a technology talk show. I have never seen one. I always thought these people should be idolized. And um, I say it's the first technology talk show. Um, You know, people can kind of come at me and prove to me that there was one before, but I had the former CEO of Eric Schmidt in 2008 on my show and no one cared. So I know that it was like one of the first in these like early, early days. After two seasons of the show online, and you know, you were alluding to asking about distribution, et cetera, you know, this was my own entrepreneurial, entrepreneurial journey. It was like early days of digital distribution. No one knew what they were doing. It was a complete disaster to get your content out there. Um, and I was looking for eyeballs. But because I was on a Nickelodeon show, um, Nickelodeon was owned by Viacom. And I, um, anytime, and Viacom was in a lawsuit with YouTube. And so anytime I put something up on YouTube, it would be taken down because my identity was owned at that time by Nickelodeon, essentially, like my IP. It was this weird thing that everyone was still figuring out. So I didn't really focus on YouTube, but I was like, where else can I find eyeballs? And so I ended up working with Forbes, Mashable, numerous others, and we created content um, I was one of the first uh, shows to do a deal with all those airports and hotels. Um, now it's much more normal, but um, we were getting millions and millions of views through those. And I was just, it was this sort of like discombobulated situation. Um, after two seasons of the show, um, we then uh, took it to television, were ultimately nominated for an Emmy. Um, but also after two seasons of the show, and so we did a total of five seasons. Sorry, I feel like I'm all over the place today. Um, the world is in shambles. and That's yeah. all I can think of. That's about. right, yeah. Um, so I'm sorry, it would be bad not to even address that these horrible, pro- I mean, these wonderful protests are going on, but just like there's so much horror in the world right now, and yeah. I just want to solve all these problems. Um. So, um, so basically, I, uh, through the show, After two seasons of interviewing incredible men in technology, I was like, this is still the problem. Mm -hmm. There's still a huge problem here. Like I just interviewed men in technology for two seasons. I didn't think I could go into technology because I didn't see any women and I need to change this. So I made an initiative to interview 50% women in technology on the show. And this was like long enough ago that it was impossible to get the Meg Whitman's of the world. It was so difficult because they did not want to put themselves out there. This was like a generation of women who were like, I'm not going to help you. I had to fight so hard to get to where I am. And yeah. I was dying for mentors. I was dying for advisors. And I just got shot down and shot down again. And I'm forever grateful to um, the women of fashion technology, because once that started booming a little bit, it was Jen Hyman from Rent the Runway, She came on my show. That made it okay for Rebecca Minkoff to come on my show. That made it okay for the guilt girls to come on my show. And that made it okay for Sheryl Sandberg to come on my show before she'd written lean in before she had really gotten out there. She was a new COO at Facebook and that changed my life. Uh, I got all of a sudden it was like celebrities and Jessica Alba and the CTO of the United States of America. And like, um, really put me on the map, Um, and it was a fun, silly talk show, um, very different than most technology talk shows, um, but I started doing this like Rockin' Women series and I look back to that first Rockin' Women series and it was so cool. It was Cheryl Sandberg. It was this woman, Beth Cross, who started Ariat. If anyone is a horseback rider, that's like the biggest horseback riding brand. Mm-hmm. It was Julia Hart, who I'm still pretty close with from Eventbrite, which has now gone public. Like looking at these women just yeah. like gives me chills. Um And that was the beginning of this journey that I was just striving for more for women. Um, I grew up again in this uh, family of investors and I knew what a good deal looked like. And I was sending my dad all these deals because they pitched the show as a technology company. And I'd say, you're too early for the show, but maybe you should go talk to some investors I know. And then I was like, I can do this. I don't have any money, but I can do this. And so I, um, I started seeing some deals. I'd say you're a little early for the show. Love what you're doing. Can I write you a pennies check, a thousand dollars, $5,000, whatever I could afford at the time. Uh, sometimes I would negotiate sweat equity and get some advisory shares, um, and you know, help them with PR and media exposure. And I created this nice little track record. Um, One of those companies I sold for a 25X return in less than 18 months on the secondary market. And that was like just a huge moment for me where I realized the show was going okay. I was barely breaking even. Media is still pretty broken, although everyone's eyes are online. So this is, it's booming right now. Um, but I was like, there's something wrong. We've, I've now been on television. I've been online. No one knows how to make this a really profitable business unless you're selling tons of swag. And we were too, you know, early to like have that brand recognition. Um, and so we, so I just sort of put the show on pause. I had a baby, I got married, had a baby simultaneously while raising my first fund. Um, so I used the track record from those little angel investments I'd made to raise fund one. I pitched 500 investors, closed maybe 50 of them. Um, and the first people I went to were these people I had created relationships with through my talk show. Um, and so Alexis Mabing from Guilt Group was one of my first investors, um, you know, and I, I got this nice um, group of people who had watched and gotten to know me through um, my sort of media channel. Um, and that was how I began to build my network in terms of um, raising capital. We're now on our second fund and um, we've invested in 62 companies, uh, all female founded. There has to be a female in the founding team of five. Um, we've had uh, about six exits to date, two were one hundred for $100 million. Um, and that's still pretty early in terms of our trajectory. Yeah. Um, and I just want to keep thinking about investing in women as an opportunity. A lot of women are going out and, and saying, Oh, poor me. I'm a woman invest in me. This is an opportunity. Um, this is not a charity case. Investing in women is not charity. You are going to make a lot of money. Women raise half as much capital. They double the return. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, and so that's, we're proving that out day by day. Um I'm also really proud of the fact that because I went off of i live in l a uh we I went off of the traditional Silicon Valley road, which I literally grew up on, and totally love and respect, but again, there was no gender diversity whatsoever yeah um and i'm I put out this we are investing in women um and it was like this bat signal this magnet for thousands of female deals because women are looking for women investors because they're starting companies that often men don't relate to. And you need, we need men. This is not a man-hating club. We need, especially because they control the majority of the capital. Mm -hmm. Um, But we really need um, people to invest in more women. And so I started thinking about, Oh wow! We're getting all these women from all over, and we're investing in the best deals. And completely, just that was our beginning strategy. And we have over sixty percent minority-led companies because we were looking for the best. And I'm mm-hmm. so proud of that, especially today, um, because it is so important to. We always yeah. say, you know, invest in diversity. We invest in diversity of gender, race, and age. And I think that diversity breeds success um and it's really important to give everybody a shot we make ours; we're very um easy to get a hold of you can hit me up through the website you can um you know pitch us through the website you can find me on instagram i've taken pictures through instagram at jessecdraper.com wait at jessecdraper i'm all over the place today goodness patricia yeah. um but um i uh but we take pitches everywhere because I never want people to feel like you have to have an introduction to me. I think it's really important, yeah. um, that everyone has a shot and we might miss out on the next, you know, Uber or something yeah. even better if we don't look at every deal we possibly can. Um, and so anyway, that is my, that's how I got here. And nice. now I'm, yeah,
0: now you're here. I, well, and I think it's interesting when you talk about the culture of, um, you know, you, you can, we can get into the statistics that everyone's heard a million times over about the consumer dollars and the power that women and women identified non-binary, those communities have in what they're spending and how they're not taking advantage over that power and things like that. But you and I were talking off the record before we started filming about, um This kind of, I was um, kind of baptized into the concept a little bit too late for my comfort, but um, this concept of the life cycle of the female entrepreneur and founder and how the matriculation should naturally turn into, when I say female, I mean female identified non-binary as well, pretty much anyone other than the white man that's kind of been represented and spoken about for the past 50 years. Um, Not that I don't care about them. I just don't, not speaking to them right now. Um, the, The responsibility that they have in the life cycle about eventually matriculating all the way through and becoming investors themselves and becoming, you know, part of this, like giving back into that system where they invest in Melinda Gates has talked recently on a very open platform as this being one of her major issues and um, concerns as of late. And I think that, um, it's so important to kind of unpack that, and one of the most interesting things, you know, we have all of these correlations, and nothing's causation, and I'm never, never claiming that, but there are these correlated values. When you say, you know, we were just looking for the best, and we wanted it to be female or some kind of woman involved in the original founding of it, and to have it all of a sudden also be represented in, you know, um, minority representations and populations as well is just—it's proof, as you're saying, diversification works and it drives. And, you know, there's a lot of different, I come from a huge psychology and sociology background. So a large part of me wants to parse out like, oh, it's because those people fought harder. It's because they were more used to hearing no, it's because they had to do da, da, da. And none of that is, um, neither here nor there. And it's again, it's all correlation, but I do think that there is truth in that. And people can talk about it all day long, but until you put your effort and your money down as you have, the change is not yet happening. You know, and I think that there's been a lot of discourse in the the communities that I have spoken with in um, women investors and ventures um, and and things of that nature, where there's still a lot of chat. There was a lot of hyper um, conversation about the Me Too movement, you know, and how um, people were terrified that it was just going to go away. It was going to get all this publication. We're going to take down a whole bunch of horrible abusers. And then it was just going to kind of go back to business as usual. There wasn't going to be any law, there wasn't going to be any change and things like that. And I think the same thing is true with investment. And I'm looking at changing the seat at at the table, as Gates said, Um, you know, putting the change out there as your, your fund has been and talking about it, um, I think is a crucial part of the process because we can all have these summits and, and discuss things as women and female-identified individuals. But until we start putting those things into motion, it won't change for our children's generation. And that's my goal. You know, mine is is happening right now and playing out how it will. But my daughters need to come up in a different world where they see people looking like us and female-identified individuals at the table. Because when I was coming up, I didn't see nearly one female in tech until Oriana. With posts. Like I did not, I did not know of one. And I hung out with nerds from Atari days up. Like I yeah. was kicking it with with the kids that were playing it, then programming the games, then in their parents' garage. And it was always men. And you know, it was usually always white men. And so and, even from the visual aspect of the archetype that I saw in person and on TV, you were saying
1: Your daughters are clearly gonna be fine. Um I'm glad you're even <laughs> thinking about that. I, I mean, one of my biggest frustrations running a fund that focuses on women is that fund one. I went out and thought, oh, I'm going to go meet with like the female billionaires and all the women investors I can find. And you know, I'm not saying I sat down with every female billionaire, but quite a few. And um, what I found is women are more comfortable writing a multi-million dollar check to charity than investing in a fund. And I started asking why, why are you bragging to me about how you wrote a $3 million check to that charity you believe in? And why have I had six meetings with you? And it's taking you so long to like get across the table here. Um, and you know, they say, well, I don't know that much about venture capital. I prefer if you talk to my husband, you know, and this like meeting six, I now have this rule that after three meetings, you know, you know, if they're in, <laughs> you know, yeah. um, and, I'm like, okay, well, let's meet with your husband, you know, and usually the husband's game. Um, and it's, it's fascinating to me, but I, we started a dinner series. Now you'll have to come to one. Um, but, and now it's very easy because they're all on zoom um, where I was really frustrated that women are not taking enough risk with their capital. Um, and so anyway, fun, you know, my investors overall are the majority are male. It's probably 60% male to female. And that's, That's frustrating for me. Um, I I would love to have, you know, much larger um, female investor base um, because of what we're doing. And, um, but I, again, I do love men. I was raised by incredible men. I just think that, and men control the majority of the capital, but we need it changing at those levels. We need it. Like I walked into a workers comp fund somewhere in the middle of the country and um, I was, like laughed at like the the, you know coffee came out of this guy's mouth and he's like i can't believe that you're investing in women why would we invest in this fund you only invest in women and i was like okay well i guess okay i just went back in time so um here's why it's a great investment they raise half as much capital they double the return here's all the data Mm -hmm. Uh, and i was so grateful because about halfway through that meeting, um, one of the associates came in, uh, and it was a younger guy and he said, Oh, my wife uses that company. Um, and Oh yeah, I've heard of that one too. And so I do see it changing, but we need more women in those conversations because these are the, um, pension funds and, um, the, yeah, Partner investors who invest in capital in women and make those giant endowments. Those are all run by men, Um, and now they're hiring. You know, a few more women, but we need more women investors. We need more women to understand investing and try. Like the more you try, you know, big risk equals big reward. Buy some stock. Go on Robinhood. You like Starbucks? Go buy some Starbucks. That's a public stock. Um, You know. Bitcoin too is like one to 17 uh, in terms of female to male. And um, that is a huge opportunity as well. Like what is Bitcoin? I'm sure everyone's thinking right now on this, like go figure it out. You don't have to buy a whole Bitcoin. You can buy a little piece of the Bitcoin. But -hmm. I think women need to be playing in these circles and um, taking this risk with their capital. And it makes you feel more comfortable the more you're exposed to it. So I always say like to the men, you know, bring your sisters, your daughters, your mothers into these conversations, your wives champion women, um, and wives and significant others should be in every single conversation with your financial manager. Like, I don't care if you don't understand it, sit there. You will understand it after you go to a few of these meetings, um, and you will learn more and you can ask questions about why you're invested in that or what it means to be invested in a real estate fund or whatever it may be. Mm -hmm. Um, so I just say like expose yourself, take more risk with your capital and talk about money. I mean, my friends clam up when I I'm like, hey, you guys like want to talk about like what you're investing in right now. And it's like, it's like the air is sucked out of the room, you know? And, (laughs) And some of these people work in finance and it just blows my mind that they don't own any stock. And so I really believe women need to build their pool of capital, build their own family offices, Um, and also know as a woman that you have, you own 50% of your, uh, you know, however the wealth was created. If your husband worked and you stayed home, you own 50% of that. You can decide where that goes. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I think women just clearly, I'm on my soapbox now, but they need to take more risk.
0: Yeah. And I think risk aversion is is one of the things that, like you were saying, like we need to matriculate out of the next generation coming up. You yeah. know, it feels like it was baked in and finding out those levels. I think it, it's bred, any kind of aversion for me is always bred through ignorance, right? Yeah. Anytime you have an exposure, like you're saying, just go along, go to the meeting, become exposed, make those terms start washing over you. They, they become very unmystified once you hear them enough and you put an assigned value to them. Those kinds of things, I think that integrating into the high school measurements, you know, young women leaving high school should understand the stock market. And I can promise you about 0.2% of my entire graduating class from high school, including, and the women were probably 0.001% understood or even grasped the, the tenets of the stock market, let alone how to how to garner them, you know, and, and you say people clam up, like even people who are in finance and things of that nature. I do. I think it's based out of fear, you know, because I think it's fascinating to talk about, especially the areas I don't know of. Yeah. And to to like climb through, but I don't have um, this kind of like um, fear-based reluctance towards it. And I believe that education is the great equalizer. And so I think that encouraging young women who um, I run in a lot of artistic circles, you know, and encouraging artists, like, that, that does not give you a get out of jail free card from understanding the ins and outs of the American banking system. Like, what are you talking about? We all function in this society, you know, and understanding the the tenants, the core tenants of the axiomatic values of some of those are imperative to breaking down the gender, you know, bias.
1: Yeah, it is interesting having come from the acting career where you, you know, make a large you know, I'm just thinking of artists because I've I've learned a lot about them, especially through um, being a venture capitalist. We have a lot of celebrity investors in um, my fund. And it, it's interesting when I pitch a potential investor and they happen to be a celebrity um, and you fall in two buckets. Like either one is like the celebrity who made a chunk of change and spent it. And every time they make a chunk of change, they spend it. And then there's the celebrity who was like, I um, I know I need to save this Mm -hmm. and I am going to, um, learn a little about investing. I am going to, um, you know, find a financial manager. And those are the, like, you know, all the biggest celebrities, you know, who've had these like careers of longevity, who are able to then invest in their own, uh, pieces of artwork and produce their own movies, um, because they then have the capital to do that. And so I find it's this sort of like up and down thing in terms of how artists invest. Um, and yeah, it's, I, I do know a lot of artists as well who just kind of check out and it, it's like, no, you will have, you'll have more flexibility in your career too. Mm-hmm. Like investing is for everyone. It's not, um, and you know, you don't have to have millions of dollars to invest. You can go buy a stock for, you know, 20 to 50 to hundred dollars, whatever you yeah. feel like putting aside. And I always like to talk about that there was this fidelity study <clears throat> done where they studied, um, Fidelity did this big study and said, who made the most money in the stock market? And it was the people who forgot that they were invested in the stock market. So Mm -hmm. I like to think, I like to tell people that so that you can think about how to invest. Don't get hung up if the market goes up and down, just hold on. And if you're in your 20s to 30s, um when you like you know most people don't have any cash they're just starting to try and build their careers etc um just every once in a while go like put some put some cash in the stock market 50 dollars 100 dollars, whatever you read about some stock uh you know that seemed interesting to you or you believe that you know whatever some sort of uh oh like you buy some um PNG because everyone's scrambling for toilet paper, whatever it is. Like, just think about a reason why you might buy that stock because you believe in that company and then just leave it there, leave it there, watch it grow and, um, and you take it out as needed. But I think that, uh, that's how you should yeah. think about investing in the stock market.
0: Absolutely. I want to pivot a little bit before we, um, end up wrapping. Cause I have my own personal um, demands from this podcast. And one of them is to pick your brain yes. on um, my uh, the area that is is kind of near and dear to me. And I kind of want to unpack a little bit of what you did on the Valley Girl Show because of when it was started, and we got this little preview of you were talking about like nobody was doing it, and it was this weird monopoly between being pulled down off YouTube and all of these different things. Um, I'm curious when you went to curate, uh, were you the sole curator of your interview questions and research? And when you went to speak to these people, where did you draw your inquiries from? Did you have this written script? Did you look at everything that you guys were garnering about them and think, I'm gonna ask them this, this, and this? Like, how did you kind of choose? You interviewed Elon Musk, you interviewed a, a lot of like, it wasn't just, we, you got into the field tech It was tech like early stage,
1: and they were all such early stage startups. And Elon yeah. Musk, I think, and I both probably feel like that is an interview we wish didn't still exist. <laughs>
0: I love it that's perfect
1: he, he's um I don't know he was very cool it was like probably one of his first press interviews no one had even heard of yeah
0: uh, he looks like a babe in the woods on, yeah. on that when I did watch that one um yeah, and Jessica Alba too really, really. I was telling you I was like yeah. oh she looks good and then I was like well she always looks good but then I realized it was a little bit older but I'm curious how did you kind of um curate your interview question process and who did the editing? Did you have any handle in how the editing and production was done or were you simply the host?
1: Such good questions. Um, so season one, um, I I went to my Nickelodeon show and then filmed it on a hiatus out of my parents' garage. Um, it was a disaster. I hired my brothers who are much younger than me and uh, <laughs> duct taped lamps to the wall. It was such a mess. Um, I, uh, knew these sort of editor guys from high school who helped me out, um, and put together those first episodes, which I just cringe thinking about. Um, and, um, and then after that, I went back to the Nickelodeon show and I, I am so grateful because I like Albie Hecht, who's now runs HLN, um, the HLN network, but I basically said to him, um, I said, Hey, can I sit in on production meetings? Like, I don't know how to run a show. It turns out. Um, and he was so nice. He just kind of like, was like, yeah, sure. So I went and I learned about, you know, uh, production design and lighting and, um, just how they thought about that. And then I started studying like the Ellen DeGeneres show. I mean, she's still one of my idols forever. Like I would just die to meet her. Um, And just what she did, and I liked that it was so positive. Um, And then it sort of became this like, we called it the Valley Girl because of Silicon Valley, but then it became this like Valley Girl thing uh, where everything turned pink and um, we just ran with it. Um, It was a very pink talk show. But every season got a little better. So then I came back and I hired a small production team um, and uh, they helped me film. And that's when I learned about, you know, like a multi-camera shoot and how that worked. Because on the Nickelodeon show, it was just a different style of filming. And this is Mm -hmm. like, you know, I'd be like, how many cameras do I need? Like how, (laughs) what's the least amount of cameras that I need? Yeah. I don't want to pay any more Mm -hmm. rental fees than I have to. And so we started a three camera shoot Um, and then every, you know, once you create a really solid format, and you know what you're doing in terms of format, then you can kind of branch out from there, and just things came to fruition, games that people liked to play, we continued to play, we discontinued trying to get people to eat edible cockroaches, like, that did not go well, you know, like, there were um, true story like there were things that people freaked out people are really scared of reptiles it turns out I just was like this isn't fun anymore we're not gonna do <laughs> um, but um so you you build upon that so every season I'd come back with new sponsors or whatever and <clears throat> be like okay we can use a lot of the props and things from last season and just like put a nice shine over it um you know and there's certain seasons that definitely stand out to me Um, especially once we got to television it was just like a different level of production um but then we would, you know, I remember we we got a jib. We borrowed someone's jib, uh, which is like the sort of hanging camera so you can get that cool hanging shot, even yeah. though it was in a tiny, tiny room. Um, and it just made it, it like brought it to a whole nother level. We, um, uh, from the Nickelodeon show, there was a lot of music and I had um, one of the music guys uh, help me put together like a an <clears throat> uh, music thing. It was like a Valley Girl little funny sound intro song uh, that we cut together some fun clips of the show on and um, in terms of the questions I mean um, I'm sure you're asking also because as a talk show host there's no books on this like right I, I read everything there was like the art of the interview I was like that wasn't helpful uh, and <laughs> yeah. I am you know there's really no books on it and what I would say having done thousands of interviews and uh, um and also been interviewed thousands of times I really appreciate that you do your research. I think that says everything. I'll never forget this one interview I had on Fox Business. And um, we were on camera when I realized she had not done an ounce of research. And sometimes those shows move fast. So I give everyone the benefit of the doubt, but it's like, know my name, know what I'm doing, like know why I'm here. And it's fine. In those situations, if you ever are being interviewed, you should just know that, assume people have no idea and just kind of interrupt and like, give them your whole spiel. Um, But uh, I really appreciate people doing the research. I did just, we would book, um, we would film like, you know, a whole season in a week or two. And I would do up to five interviews a day. I don't know how I did that in my early twenties. Like I now think about that. Um, There was, I did some international interviews too at conferences and stuff. And I remember there was one day I did eight interviews and I was like, I can't do that again. <laughs> that yeah, because yeah. you're fried. You're on yeah. camera. People expect a lot of you. You need to be on point. Um, but yeah, so the first um, probably four seasons, I wrote all the questions myself. Of course, I would get input. I would ask um, PR. I would work with the PR teams. I would always try to get different things. So like that, no one had talked about. So like with Sheryl Sandberg, I found this weird tidbit online somewhere that she had formerly been an 80s workout instructor and
0: i excellent
1: hilarious (laughs) and i apparently had i broke that piece of news and if you watch that episode she is shocked she's like i don't know how you bounce and i was then quoted like three times in the wall street journal or the show was that was the moment i was sort of like wow this is crazy it's like according to the Valley girl show you know cheryl sandberg used to be a workout instructor and um, I think you want to find those tidbits. And for me, yeah. I didn't want the PRified version. We would interview these CEOs who had been trained and trained and trained. And um, I would go in with a bunch of questions and know what I wanted out of the interview. And in the beginning, if you watch those first episodes, you know, I mean, they really haunt me because I didn't know how to do an interview. I just write a whole bunch of questions. Then I started being like, okay these are topics. And here's the questions I'd like to ask under every topic. And then also, can I make it funny? Um, And so, you know, it evolved like anything, no one's good at it the first time or the second time (laughs) or the third time. Um, But I worked really hard on those interviews, uh, especially at the end. And then when we were on, we were on Fox uh, in local Fox in San Francisco, and then we were poached by CBS K in San Francisco. And when that happened, I was um, working 24 seven around the clock. The stories I could tell you from that season, I had moved the show to LA and then we would have to turn it around and get it to San Francisco. We would have to close caption it. I was not sleeping. I was newly married, had a baby and was like contemplating raising this fund. And I, my husband finally sat me down and was like, so this is not humanly sustainable. Like, yeah. You can't actually do this, but that was when I brought on a writer um, just to help me with like monologues because the format had changed a little bit and I couldn't turn around these episodes in time. And the writer who I brought on, her name is Liz Hanna, and she is currently the hottest like writer in Hollywood. After she wrote the Valley Girl show, she's probably like, please never talk about this again. She's after she wrote the Valley Girl show, she wrote The Post with Meryl Streep. And now she's written the long shot. She's on every cool show coming out um, as a writer. She's just, she's awesome. And I am so excited to continue to watch her career, but she was funny and she did a really good job um, coming up with some jokes and you need other people in there too um, at a certain point to just get all of the work done. Um, But I really did. Ultimately, if you're an interview host, you're the one saying it at the end of the day. So if someone else is writing your questions for you, and you should think about this in terms of moderating panels or giving presentations, like if someone tells you to say something that you don't feel comfortable with, you're representing yourself. So never say that. So we had not with necessarily with Liz, but there were situations where um, someone would say, Oh, you have to ask them about that. Or, um, I don't know. You just need to go with what you feel comfortable with. And those Mm -hmm. were a lot of the lessons I learned mainly like those were more kind of like public interviews when you do it in front of a large audience or what have you. Yeah. Yeah. So I did all the writing for the most part until Liz came on and I did an extreme amount of research. And then also just how do I come up with an idea? Like, I mean, some things worked and some things didn't because I was trying to make technology approachable and, at that time, it wasn't, it was, um, people just didn't get it. Uh, they didn't understand hardware. They didn't understand software. And so I try to make crazy analogies. Um, I remember we had these like equal guys on one time they were running this company called equal, (laughs) like filled, I filled like a wagon with sugar, like equal, like the the sugar, the
0: sugar substitute.
1: It's not not even funny when I'm telling you about it, but there were things like that, that, (laughs) Mm -hmm. um, were it was just it was fun to come up with um and we we would come up with just crazy games and some yeah. came, people still bring up the fab cup to me which was basically just like a rapid fire questions game and um i think we ultimately at the end called it rapid fire questions but in the beginning we called it the fluff cup because it was this fluffy bucket and then i learned that that was like a porn term <laughs> And so you just, I mean, yeah, like I could tell you all day, but yes, I, I had my hands on everything. I thought I had to be the last person to really work with the interviews. Even when Liz came on, um, I just needed to know these people through and through, um, and really figure out what made them tick. And if I didn't feel like I had enough information, I'd like reach out to their assistant or I would, um, just be like, give me something, give me some like fun fact. Like, I don't know, you know, I don't know anything about this person. Yeah. It does. And
0: it differentiates. I mean, well, back when you were doing it as well, like social media, I feel like I can find any little skeleton I need to, you know, if I'm looking for something. But back in that point, it is, I think there was a lot of like old school reach outs too. even just five years ago, it was just a different game. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think it's, it's awesome, because it's still the Wild West. But I also think um, I did a podcast recently where I was interviewed about um, I've started, you know, five podcasts over the past two years and, um, people are, are asking me about like, you know, you seem to have this down and, um, and I'm a very organized individual. I get very creative in my organized space, you know? And so I have these, these ledgers, which is why I tend to redo systems that I have, but, um, I, it's actually a pet peeve of mine. And I used to think it was because I'm a nerd. I, I love academia. You know, I always did. I have a master's degree in art history, which just means I like to go to lectures. That's pretty much it. You know, I like to just go and sit around those people and talk. Um, and, uh, and, essentially my issue with podcasting is not that it's the wild west that there's all this like anyone's doing anything it's that the lack of structure like I just a lot of times if someone I pulled up a podcast the other day it was two hours and 10 minutes and I was like girl you are asking it from me but I will give it to you I will give that to you but I I, for the first 10 minutes the host didn't tell me anything about what I was expected to hear, whether or not there was gonna be more than one or two guests. Like I couldn't figure out the format. Like, was she gonna start reading her diary? Like what was gonna happen there, you know? And I'm down with a lot. So I just, but there was no forecasting. Um, And then when she did get her first guest on, I had realized very, very quickly that she didn't even know, she hadn't even spoken prior to hitting record. Like she didn't know how to pronounce one's name let alone anything more than, you know, a bio that she had scrubbed offline. And I. so in the interview, I keep telling people, you know, I think that there is a slight onus for anybody who's going to get online and interview someone else that you, you should do a, you know research and how much that is, is however much time you have or how much you want to invest in it. But right. someone put forth some kind of a structure and research. Otherwise, let's not call it a podcast. Let's call it your daily musings. My 12 year old has a podcast. It's got more structure than 90% of what I find, you know, and, um, maybe that's because she doesn't want to upset me and hear what you're hearing right now but um I think that there is a a responsibility to start parsing things out and it will probably come like you said with your show eventually you start to find a beautiful narrative but I do think that podcasts lack research and structure and it is kind of daunting especially to be interviewed when you go on someone's show and they're like so what is it you do yeah you're like why am I here (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Did you find my name in the white pages? How is this happening? You know, I
1: completely agree. And people like being able to depend on something, you know, yeah. you get like that carpool karaoke show and it's a very simple format. It's yeah. like thing, carpool, karaoke in the car and people love it. You know, yeah. it took off. It's a happy show. Very simple to follow. And I think people, yeah, I think you're, you're completely spot on that people need that that structure and I was actually thinking when you in the beginning when you're like this is what we're going to talk about um there's that like uh, um sort of like just a good general format to go by is tell them what you're going to tell them tell them and tell them what you told them and it's like a, a very simple format for any show
0: yes, and any research paper any research. School. Podcast. It's, it's, it's the perfect paragraph um yeah. I'm bummed we have to wrap up but I want to turn now towards goals that you have for the next one to three years and it's important um, I will not ever omit or dodge the current contemporary times and you were alluding to earlier so not only are we in the midst of the COVID-19 pandemic, how um, we are also in the midst of um, the tragedy, the precursing and post-cursing and the tragedy with George Floyd's murder and um, some of the riots that have happened. I'm in San Diego, you're in LA. There has been, you know, a great deal of unsettling and dis-ease with um, American society. And I'm an optimist. I believe that we're going to come out of this um, better. I hope... um for the sake of honoring um, George and as well as the entire community that he is representing, you know, that we can do that. But I'm wondering with your company um, and your, your goals reaching forward with both of those two things kind of compounding and coming into our reality, has it shifted or transformed your, your goals for the next one to three years or have they stayed the course? Have you doubled down? How does anything look for, um, I mean, for all of your endeavors, you know, but for Halogen in particular.
1: I mean, yeah, like our goals changed at the beginning of COVID um, and I am, I'm devastated about what's going on and I'm uncertain about what's going to happen now. We may have to completely transform our goals again. Um, You know, we invest in early stage companies and sometimes there's three people with an idea in a room. It's uh, the riskiest asset class, which is why we do um, 30 deals per portfolio. Um, And, you know, but it hedges in terms of like if you're an angel investor and you invest in a one off deal, right now is probably not a good time to invest in a one off deal because you, you know, at that stage, it's very likely that they'll go under. They say you need to do 10 deals in order to really see some payoff. And so I feel like our strategy has worked. thus far where we invest in these early stage companies we do 30 deals per portfolio but week one of covid when you deal with early stage companies you're getting the calls first because we move faster our companies move faster because they're smaller so we're hearing 60 percent hits to revenue 90 percent hits to revenue depending on the business um and so we had to in one week talk to all 62 of our founders um we just called them Got a hold of them, and our 150 item checklist uh, for diligence quickly transformed into three things. Um, yeah. And does this company have uh, runway or cash through January? Because we don't know how long this is going to last. Um, two, based on our experience, you know, pretty quickly, like in a year or two, if a founder can perform. Um, And that's something to keep in mind for founders out there thinking about taking on investment, like prove yourself, follow through, especially in the first year or two, um, because your investors won't give you more money if they feel like you didn't follow through in those first couple of years. Um, So we say based on our experience with these founders, um, can they execute and take this thing all the way regardless? Um, And then the third thing was, is this business COVID sustainable and beyond? Um, and so while we were about to invest in three new, very risky deals that we didn't have experience with the founders, I basically said, I put those on hold, which was devastating for the founders. And I said, Hey, I'm not saying we're not going to, we just need to go check out our current portfolio. Um, and then we chose our top performing, performing deals. We doubled down on those. And then we were, uh, we're an early stage fund. We don't have billions of dollars to invest, you know, call me in 10 years. And that's definitely one of my goals. Um, but we're still growing. So we have to be really, really thoughtful as you always should with your capital. Um, but we, uh, we tried to support every founder in every, in some way. So we invested in some, we hosted a pitch day for some and our, our investors invested in some of those, Um, We put together a whole list of resources from debt opportunities to credit lines, to banks they could talk to. Um, We had someone tracking the SBA loan, which changes still sort of daily. Um, And we also like offered everyone a free hour of PR and other business services um, just to support whatever they needed. Um, My team, Alexa and Ashley from my team, actually one of our companies was growing so fast. So some companies are doing really well. We have like this company called Squad. That's like, um, it's like a teenage zoom, uh, a zoom call. So they're obviously taking off and they were taking off a little before but they were growing so quickly that um, Alexa and Ashley kind of took over their marketing arm for a minute and now we've helped them put some people in place there. So we were actually helping operate some companies doing whatever we possibly could. So in terms of goals, we're still hashing those out but what I'm really proud of is that we put together those goals in one week and we've already executed the plan Um, and that's in two months we've you know invested capital into our best performers and we've supported everybody else to the extent we can Um, and we continue to do that and it was not our normal plan at all. Um, I do hope you know down the road we're on our second fund um, I do hope, you know, we raise Fund 3, we raised Fund 4, and they continue to grow, and we continue to grow our team because we're still a startup as well. Um, I hope that um, investing in women is seen more as an opportunity, and I hope we I hope that we can help prove that. We already are a little with our data that we're collecting on our founders and um, female founders in general, and, um, and then also just, you know, goals for the world. I hope everyone sees diversity as just an asset to every single business um that's something we're constantly thinking about um so uh yeah so that's that's what i would say in terms of our goals but setting goals is pretty important
0: yeah and way to pivot calling 60 companies in one week and transitioning all of that over I mean, to a whole know, we have plan. a team
1: but all of it yes it was a lot <laughs> It was that, like, I
0: would not want to stare that down on that Monday. That would be a, oh, that'd be a lot. That's a several, that's a, like a whole new cappuccino machine. That's not coffee. I measure everything in coffee cups or espresso shots. That's like a machine. That's a whole nother purchase. It's your own personal barista. Um, I'm wondering, so this is my final question. It's my favorite part. Um, everyone knows who's been listening to me for the past couple of years, but I'm wondering if you walked up to someone in a safe, safe social distance or they approached you sometime this week and it was a young woman or a female identified or non-binary individual and they said, um, listen, Jesse, uh, I'm so glad I caught you. I uh, just finished up um, learning the entire ins and outs of you know the film industry. I went to uh, UCLA. I got everything done, but buttoned up. I know all the bit about it. I've gone to a ton of auditions and I have film industry experience and I've decided, and I'm going to keep all of that. And I'm also going to pivot now and go into um, starting my own investment fund. I come from a family that's got some background there, but um, yeah, I'm just going to like, you know, bootstrap it and get going. What are the top three pieces of advice you would give that individual knowing what you know today?
1: I would say go for it. Um, I really think, especially women, we need more female investors across the board. Um, I would say baby steps, just go one step at a time. There are mountains and mountains to climb. And then this goes for fundraising across the board, whether you're fundraising for a fund or for a business, because most people don't have a million dollars to start a business in their back pocket. Um, In fact, the majority doesn't. So they typically go raise money. I I am sort of frustrated when uh, women in particular come to me and say, "Well, everyone said no. No one will invest in my company." And I say, "Okay, well, how many people have you talked to?" They say, "Oh, like eight." I'm like, "Okay, so that's not enough people." Um, I talked to 500 for my first fund, no joke. And um, you should plan on going out and talking to at least 100. If in 20 meetings you are hearing no's, still go back to some of those people and say, hey, like, what was the issue here? And it may be such a simple fix that you could like throw a slide into your deck that addresses it and it's no longer an issue. It could be something you haven't thought of of before, but definitely listen in those situations. But If you plan on going out and having 100 meetings, you'll raise it. You'll raise your your capital, whatever the number is. Um, Just don't get weighed down by the, knows there's going to be a lot of them that's in any profession. Um, but somehow it feels very personal when you're raising money and don't look at it that way. Look at it. Like I got to talk to these incredible people. And then when they don't invest, say, can you tell me why? Um, and usually it's like, has nothing to do with you. It's like, well, actually like most of my money is tied up. Uh, right now. So I don't have any cash to invest and it's like, oh, okay, well, that's simple and it has nothing to do with my business um, Or like we already invested too in too many consumer focused funds and I'm like, oh, okay I get that they're trying to like diversify their portfolio. I'll go back to them next fund um, So I just say get through the nose and plan on having a hundred meetings
0: nice that's good. And I think you're being realistic too. That's the scary part. It's, and it's good. It's good to say those things. I think people are like, you know, do at least 40 or you're like a <laughs> hundred. No, so, if you
1: put it on a hundred, it'll probably be less. So like that's yeah. fantastic.
0: Yeah. There's something probably vitally wrong with what you're doing if it's a if it's hundred and all knows. But I think that's right. That's kind of the attitude of just go until, you know, there's the Hollywood um, formula. It's not about like, you know, quick breaks and stuff like that. It's like seven years. I can't remember. There's a mathematician that broke down how long, if you audition three to four times a week in Hollywood, it takes to make a big role, a main leading role. Yeah. It's
1: like an over, uh, it takes 10 years to have an overnight success or something. Yeah, exactly.
0: And then it's like, everyone's like, oh, they just got here. And you're like, no, I've been holding it down. Yeah. (laughs) A thousand percent. Okay. So I've got, go for it, baby steps. And plan on talking to 100 people and don't get um, weighed down by the nose. Just adjust as you go. Those are perfect. I love that. Jesse. it went by too quickly. I, I'm going to have to have you back on. This was fascinating.
1: This was so fun. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. And um, I'm glad you're you know, showcasing all of these incredible women because we need more people doing
0: that. Awesome. Yes. Thank you. I appreciate that. Um, And for everyone listening, I appreciate you. We've been speaking with Jessie Draper. She's the founder of Halogen Ventures and the host and creator of the Emmy-nominated The Valley Girl Show. You can find out more about Jessie and her team and her fund on halogenvc.com. I appreciate all of you listening. I appreciate your time. And until we speak again next time, remember to stay in love with the world and always bet on yourself. Slime check.